Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. I recorded these sounds at about 4 p.m. on a Thursday, standing on the corner of St. Stephen Street and Massachusetts Avenue in Boston. This is one of the city's main thoroughfares, and in front of me is a 250-foot stretch of it. I know it well. Under normal circumstances, it serves as one of the banes of my existence. I have to drive it on my way to teach at the New England Conservatory, which is around the corner, or when I perform at Jordan Hall in the same building. From my home, it's about a seven-mile trip that takes roughly 25 minutes by car, but this minuscule length of road takes up almost a quarter of that time. Traffic literally crawls here, and there's nowhere to escape. Once you're in, you're not leaving. It's soul-crushing. But these aren't normal times, and the very few cars passing me are driving at a nice clip, unimpeded by any traffic. There are no horns honking, no one's yelling. This sounds more like waves hitting the shore on Singing Beach than Massachusetts Avenue. Behind me is Symphony Hall. Red bricks, green roof, huge theater marquee lights reading BSO. The hall is a simple rectangle, but something in its design, some collection of architectural details, possibly unnoticeable ones, makes this shoebox easily one of the five best halls in the world. It opened in 1900 and since that time has hosted some of the most incredible music making one can experience. It's where the majority of the Handel and Haydn Society's season takes place, and I've certainly experienced music on its stage that I'll never forget. Under normal circumstances, about 27 hours after I record the street sounds outside of it, what I and over 2,000 other people should hear is this.
That's the Handel and Haydn Society under artistic director Harry Christophers performing Bach's St. Matthew Passion in Symphony Hall in March of 2015. We were meant to perform it in April 2020, but these are not normal circumstances. Like every other engagement my colleagues and I were supposed to participate in, these concerts were canceled. We're all home under some form of quarantine, desperate to protect ourselves from an invisible scourge that is ravaging the entire globe. All of us, musicians, music organizations, we're all trying to find ways of keeping our art alive to ourselves and to each other, and we're trying to move forward with, if not all, then most of the relevance to society that our music-making held intact. These are the circumstances, and it's here that this podcast was born, of a desire to keep active by telling our story, the story of the music we perform, the story of our singers and players, our directors and soloists, the story of our audience and supporters, of our history and that of the town in which it was written. And it's an opportunity to offer bits of the music that was made, hoping for and looking forward to the day when we can discuss the music we're about to make. Since we can't make music together at the moment, I decided to inaugurate the podcast with episodes rooted in music we were supposed to have made recently. The next-to-last subscription concerts of our 204th season were to feature The Passion According to St. Matthew by Johann Sebastian Bach. I've asked artistic director Harry Christophers if he would join me, especially as hearing him speak at length is an opportunity I'm not afforded during a busy rehearsal week. Harry Christophers founded his ensemble The Sixteen in 1979 and has since achieved international recognition with them by performing music from the Renaissance through the 20th and 21st centuries across the globe. He has released recordings on multiple labels, including the ensemble's own Coro label. Harry was named music director of the Handel and Haydn Society in 2008, bringing his extensive choral acumen and experience directing period instrument ensembles. He has worked to elevate the ensemble's skill and enhance its reputation as a leader in historically informed performance in the United States and abroad. Appropriately enough for the reality we're all experiencing, Harry is joining me by phone from his home in Kent, about 40 miles southeast of London. Harry, so good to speak with you. Welcome. Good to chat to you, Guy, all those miles away. Since we spoke last, the world has changed somewhat. And so first and foremost, I want to know how you're doing. How are you? Well, we're, we're fine. I mean, we're like you. We have no idea what's going to happen next and, and when we'll get back to a sort of state of, of relative normality. We're just missing everybody, um, missing make, making music and meeting our friends rather than uh, talking virtually and by Zoom and all these wonderful technological things, which are fantastic. But actually, there's no real remedy for actually being there in person. What about your artistic activities? Are you able to maintain any of that facet of your life in England? I think probably like many musicians, I just uh, I thrive off being up against it in time. And so when I've got lots of time, you know, like I thought, oh, great, I've got this time. I, I can spend it looking at uh, some of the Haydn for next January. And I sit there with a the score and uh, um, no inspiration at all. So um, I'll, I'll come back to it tomorrow and maybe I will have some inspiration. But uh, I'm doing lots of gardening, guys. So my garden is going to look fantastic. Okay, so I'm getting my tomatoes from you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we were meant to perform Bach's St. Matthew Passion two weeks ago, and that is the topic of conversation for today, and I want to dive right into it, going all the way to the beginning. And I wanted to ask you if you remember your first meeting with Bach, your first experiences with the composer. 
gosh, a, lo- a long time ago, when I was a chorister at Canterbury Cathedral, my family, they weren't concert goers or, or musicians, really. And um, that was my first encounter with Bach. We would sort of boys' even songs on a Thursday. Um, 36 choristers, Alan Wicks, our choir master, used to make us sing uh, arias from uh, Bach Passions and Handel Oratorios, and, and this was sort of alto or soprano arias for boys. So we got to learn to sing real music at a very early age. You know, as a singer, as a young singer, the problem is, is also, of course, that Bach is incredibly difficult to sing. And uh, I suppose my my next real experiences were wasn't until I was at university, uh, I was at Oxford, and um, uh, trying to sing The Evangelist. I, I think I used to do it pretty well, but I have no idea what the audience used to think. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if you could encapsulate what it is in general that makes Bach so difficult to sing. I, I know as an instrumentalist that sometimes I, I will look at a vocal line and it looks like something written for violin. In other <laughs> words, there's no place to breathe. Is, is that the crux of it or is there more? No, that is exactly it. And, you know, I remember, you know, when in the early days of conducting singers in Bach, some really well-known singers who, you know, who weren't used to singing Bach, they would be singing much later music, but they would say, oh, Bach couldn't write for voices. You know, he just doesn't, doesn't allow you to breathe. But, you know, you'd have to find your way around his music and you have to make breath a part of the music. And then similarly, uh, I think as, as instrumentalists, you know, one breathes the phrases, one doesn't just plow through it. And that's the artistry, isn't it, to, to actually make the music sound um, free and not breathless. And as I say, that applies to both singers and, and instrumentalists. I was a tenor, so, you know, so bark for a tenor was, it was just too high for me. I just couldn't get around it. But just, you know, one thing with our sort of early music movement and, and playing this, you know, a semitone lower than uh, than modern, modern pitch and singing it is that taking it that little step down, it actually makes it a little bit more possible. Um, but as I said before, it's about finding your way around the geography of, of the music. When we play Bach at H&H, we tune to a pitch that is lower than what the London Symphony Orchestra, for instance, might use, or the Boston Symphony. Uh, it's about a half step lower, in accordance with what we believe Bach was familiar. The trend is that, in general, pitch today is more standardized and also higher than in many places during the 18th century, with some exceptions. Does that make a difference? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's so for every single voice. Actually, we have a student project in England with the 16 called Genesis 16, which is singers between 18 and 22. And one of the courses last year, uh, we just had a long weekend, and we decided to do it on some Bach Motet. Bark, and at the end of it, they were all so excited 
because they had, fa- they had suddenly realized that actually, if you work your way around the geography, you work your way around the style, you, you don't see it all mezzo forte or forte. I gave them all the sort of stylistic things to think about, and they were beaming over their faces. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And they likewise went away from that weekend thinking, I can sing some Bach. I, I, result. <laughs> so Bach pushed the singers to places they didn't know they could go. Yeah, but he does that instrumentally, doesn't he, Guy? Talk about the Matthew Passion, think of it, Barbadix, the, the solos, the demands he's making on everybody is just phenomenal. And, uh, and Bach challenges your technical abilities to the nth degree, and, but also produces something that is just heart-rendering brilliant. And, uh, and, and just, if a composer wrote some of the Matthew Passion today and for the instrumentation he chose, you would think, wow, this is, this is really contemporary. This guy is, is putting instruments together that shouldn't go together. Any examples come to mind where you think to yourself, wow, this oh. is so relevant, so contemporary? Auf Lieber. I mean, people always talk about Ibarmadi as the greatest art of Matthew, which, of course, it is phenomenal, you know, after Peter Tanar. But Alf Lieber, the, the, you know, the soprano solo um, for Love, My Saviour, Now Is Dying, there's no, there's no bass line. Guy, you're not playing in this one. It's one of the movements you don't play in. Uh, but what supplies the bass line are these, are these two oboe de catchers playing just block quarter notes at the beginning and over it this, this just celestial flute solo that that is that is ah oh, it's so so expressive plaintive it's just absolutely gorgeous
That was soprano Joel Harvey, along with flutist Chris Kruger and oboist staccaccia Steve Hammer and Lonnie Sparr performing the aria Aus Liebe from Bach's St. Matthew Passion with the Handel and Haydn Society at Boston's Symphony Hall in March 2015. Harry, uh, Bach had an incredible ear for texture and instrumental color. Yeah, he certainly did. That aria with uh, with Gamba, which is so extraordinary, you know, Komzusa Kreutz, uh, come blessed cross. I mean, you as a cellist must be sort of hopping mad when that when the, when the Gamba starts playing that. I love my job. I love playing a simple bass line. It lets me enjoy something somewhere else on stage. And besides making simple music into crucial music is a great exercise, a great artistic exercise. Mm. Besides, the music is so complete here that it doesn't matter who has the more florid yeah. line. It is, isn't it? But it's just, I mean, you've presumably, you must have played the, the actual the, the solo on the cello at some stage. There is a tradition of cellists playing that. In fact, some of our excerpt books contain that solo. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Once you've heard a gamba play it, mm. uh, if you have that sound in your ear trying to reproduce it, it's a completely different world and it is, it's never it? satisfying. Yeah. I'm, I'm much happier letting someone else do it than just accompanying. Yeah, and that's what makes Bach the genius, doesn't it? Because he, you know, he's taking a, an old, what is an old instrument, even for his time, and uh, put, put giving that aria and giving the continuo, the cello and the the organ, just this very simple continuo line that occasionally has a little bit of expression in that just before the solo starts, and it, it's just it's just it's so heartrending. It's, it's brilliant. Sumner Thompson singing the aria Komm Süßes Kreuz, along with violist Agamba Laura Jeppesen, organist Ian Watson, and me. So, Harry, at the start of April, when Handel and Haydn saw that they had to cancel our performances, you wrote the musicians a letter in which, among other things, you said that you were especially disappointed because you don't get to perform the St. Matthew Passion all that often. And that made me want to know your personal history with the work. When did you first encounter it? Gosh, I mean, very late on. I mean, I came to music quite late, although I was, you know, as I said, I was a chorister at Canterbury and I went to 
as a chorus girl at Morden Oxford and, and got introduced to a lot of music. But having not come from a musical family, every piece of music I encountered was, was sort of for the first time. So uh, I didn't actually encounter the Matthew Passion in its entirety until I'd formed the 16 and in very early days of 16, uh, Tom Koopman in, in his early days with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra, we had the collaboration that he used the 16 in his choir for the Amsterdam Baroque. So I had the bonus of all Tom Koopman's expertise with Bach, because, I mean, the Netherlands every Easter is wall-to-wall Bach, so somebody like Tom Koopman had amazing uh, uh, experience with this. Uh, I first came across Matthew in its entirety at the Ansbach Festival. We did it uh, for Tom. And uh, I was absolutely bowled over by it because I, you know, I'd come across bits of it. I didn't really hear a complete performance until I was probably, I would say, 28, 28, 29, something like that, because I didn't understand Bach. And it was, you know, and I've, you know, I've come to it, you know, really late 20s and gradually beginning to understand it. And I think partly it's because, because of the singer element, because I found it really hard to sing as a singer, and I, I suppose in many ways it put me off. But going back to Ton and hearing it complete there, I was absolutely bowled over and I felt the need at some stage to perform it and conduct it on my own. So you formed a group so you could do it? Well, I almost did, yes. It was a bit like that. We first performed it in Spain because, as you know, I mean, Matthew Passion for a professional organization is an incredibly expensive work to put on. I expect there might be somebody out there that's never listened to the Matthew Passion, so we should tell them that actually this is a work for two orchestras, two choirs, four soloists, and two other soloists doing the parts of the evangelist and Christ. And it's a massive, massive work. And whether done like you know, Bach often did, one to a part, both vocally and instrumentally, or done by a, a vast force, it's, it's an immense work. I think I counted 80 wow. participants for what was to have been our performance a couple of weeks ago. And that's an early music ensemble, which is to say we are using forces that approximate what Bach may have used, usually fewer than what a modern symphony orchestra might put on stage. Still quite a gathering. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any particularly memorable performances that stand out? very much. I mean, we used to do, the only times I performed the Matthew Passion outside Boston actually was with uh, with my own group of 16 and in, in tours of Spain. Um, and there was one very memorable time, um, I can't remember the exact year, but it was the year of a appalling massacre at uh, Dunblane in Scotland. It was a primary school in Scotland. And anyway, we were in Spain. I can't remember exactly where we were. I think it was Andorra. And uh, this news had just come through, and uh, we dedicated the performance to the memory of all the uh, the young children who, who died in this. And, and it was amazing watching everybody on stage break down at, at different moments. It, it, that's the incredible thing with the Matthew Passion. It, it sort of took people to, to the realms that they give emotion they didn't really know they could go. And, and it happened to put every individual on stage at a different moment during that performance. I remember we all came off stage. There was total silence as we walked off. It was really highly, highly emotional and highly charged.
That's an incredibly moving story, Harry. Yeah. Our episode began on a dramatic note, and maybe it's right that it end on one as well. But there's so much more to talk about, so much more I want to ask you. Would you come back next episode and continue our conversation? Thank you, Guy. I certainly will. That was a great pleasure. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Harry. Be well. Likewise, Guy. Thank you for tuning in. You can find more information on today's episode, as well as supplementary materials, including program notes, definitions of some of the terms discussed in this episode, and even a copy of Bach's manuscript of his St. Matthew Passion, on the Handel and Haydn Society's website at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast. I hope you join me for the next episode. Oh, yeah.